This expert insight session was recorded in front of a live webinar audience on the 29th of September, 2021. The topic was repetitive negative thinking, understanding and treating rumination and worry. On the panel, we had Elliot, our lived experience representative, Professor Michelle Moulds from the School of Psychology at University of New South Wales, Dr. Nisha Seti, clinical psychologist at Southside Health and Wellbeing. And chairing this session is Dr. Carol Newell. Hi, everyone, and welcome to tonight's podcast on repetitive negative thinking, understanding, and treating rumination and worry. And thank you for joining us this evening. Before we get started, let me give my acknowledgement to country. Um, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of this land. Um, I am zooming in from Hornsby, Gordon area. So that's the Gurungai Nation and the Darug people. I'd like to pay my respects to the elders, both past and present, and I'd like to Extend that respect to any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander who are present here today um, and welcome. Let me just get started. Um, I'm Carol Newell and I'm the moderator as well as a clinical psychologist and I'm so excited to have our panel members today and if, you've, if you're watching this you will get to see it on our PowerPoint. I'm going to um, get our panel members to introduce themselves. Tell us a little bit about yourself and your expertise in the area of repetitive negative thinking. Let's start with Elliot tonight, our lived experience representative. Hello, guys. Thank you for having me tonight. Um, so my name's Elliot Waters. I'm coming to you from Newcastle in New South Wales, which is a Wobbicle country. Um, I'm a psychology student at the University of Newcastle, and I'm currently finishing my honours thesis. So for all you psychologists watching, if you want to supervise me, please reach out. Um, I also have a lived experience of rumination and worry. So I would encourage people to get their pens and paper ready as I'm about to list the different diagnoses that I have. There's quite a few. So originally I was diagnosed with depression and generalized anxiety disorder, which I, I still hold now. Um, but I also have experience and a diagnosis of borderline personality disorder, bipolar type 2, ADHD, and social anxiety disorder. So um with those diagnoses, obviously, there's a lot of overlap, um, but there's definitely a lot of experience there to draw upon. Um, so, yeah, that's me. Thanks, Elliot. Welcome to tonight's podcast, and thank you for giving up an evening for us um, and to share your experience. Next up, we've got uh, Professor Michelle Moles. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Hi, Carol. Thank you very much for having me. Um, I'm Michelle Moulds. I'm a clinical psychologist in the School of Psychology at UNSW. Um, I've been interested in repetitive negative thinking and studying it for a long time now, particularly in the context of depression. So most of my work has been on rumination, but also looking transdiagnostically. So the role of repetitive thinking in social anxiety, PTSD and other anxiety disorders. Joy is zooming in from. I'm zooming in from London. I am. Okay. Uh, no. nice to be here. <laughs> That's quite a time difference. So such a big thank you to Michelle for um, for uh, zooming in all the way from London. It's uh, in the morning at the moment for her. And next we've got Dr. Nisha Sethi. So tell us a little bit about yourself, Nish. 
Sure. So yes, my name's Nisha. I'm a clinical psychologist. So zooming in tonight from Sydney. Um, so I went to UNSW so I was taught by Michelle. So I was fortunate enough to have her as my co-supervisor for my PhD and as a clinical supervisor. And so I learned a lot about worry and rumination from a very early um, part of my, I guess, learning journey. Um, and since then, I've largely been working in private practice. Mostly um, I've been working with anxiety and mood disorders um, with adult clients. And so worry and rumination is something I work with on a daily basis. Absolutely right. I don't think it's possible. I don't think it's possible to avoid it at all in any field that we work in. Um, I think it's such a massive transdiagnostic process. But that's actually the first question. We've all heard of worry, but less people have heard of rumination. And there are these two thinking stuff. But maybe we start off with like just a basic description of what we mean by repetitive negative thinking what are like the core cool features of it I might um, get Michelle to start this definition sure. what do you think sure so repetitive negative thinking is a term that we use to describe different types of repetitive thinking across different disorders and I guess the main features are really just that repetition so our clients tell us they perseverate they're thinking on a particular theme and can't shake that. So the thinking just goes on and on and has that very repetitive, you know, recycling kind of quality. Mm-hmm. Um, another really important aspect of repetitive negative thinking is that it has a very abstract flavor. So often our clients, when they're worrying or they're, they're dwelling on the past, they're thinking in very abstract terms. Why did I do that? What's wrong with me? What if that happens? So rather than being focused on specific and very concrete details, there's really this flavor of sort of analyzing that these very abstract and overgeneral. Mm-hmm. And I think another key feature is, is, I guess, what I call the stickiness of repetitive thinking. So our clients have difficulty disengaging. So once they're on that train and once they're thinking and they're worrying and, and that thinking has got rolling, it's very hard to, to, to move away from it. So there's a real stickiness. And I think that's what we really focus on in treatment. How do we break that down? Absolutely. Is that how you describe it in your practice to your clients, um, Mish? So when you're... Because I know that we kind of think about it in terms of like exactly that, Michelle, you know, when I'm thinking about it in terms of research papers, here are kind of the core features. But how do we describe it to clients so that they can better pick it up? Nish, how do you describe it to clients? Sure. So the way that I tend to talk about this with clients is I say, like, if you can imagine your mind as being like a radio and radios have different stations, you can be listening to at any point. It's a question of like, which radio station might I be listening to right now or for the last few hours if you happen to have been stuck to a particular channel. So for example, if you're on the dwelling or rumination channel, it's exactly what Michelle is describing. It has that kind of flavor by me. Why did I do it that way? I shouldn't have done this. And they might kind of dart from, you know, issue to issue where they're like, I've just done this wrong and I've done that wrong. There was this problem here as well, but they're not actually getting anywhere new. Mm-hmm. Um, and same with worry. So it's, or sometimes, you know, people might call it like their what if channel or the cat- catastrophizing channel. It's like everything mm-hmm. that could possibly go wrong. They're trying to plan ahead for it. They see it as problem solving, but it's not necessarily going to have that flavor because again, they're not really coming up with solutions. It's just this sense of, again, getting stuck in that cycle and having a really hard time disengaging from it. Mm. Absolutely. So I think I really love this description of a radio channel, right, to be able to start becoming a little bit more mindful of what channel are you picking up, right, and and being aware of what you're doing. So what distinguishes worry from rumination? Are they the same thing? Um, You know, we've called them two different things. They're categorized together. How do we start to distinguish between the two? 
Uh, Michelle, do you want to take this one? I'm happy to speak to that. So I think that distinction has really been very much based on theoretical models and the way we think about particular disorders. So we've mm. the literature on rumination very much developed in the context of depression, and that's where we know most about it. And mm. our measures, our self-report measures, tap rumination, usually about depression, depression mm. and sad mood. And I think on the, on the other side, we've thought about worry in the context of anxiety, particularly GAD, and we know that's mm-hmm. a core feature, diagnostic feature. Um, so mm. I think that distinction very broadly has often been on rumination being about the past and worry mm-hmm. being about the future. Um, but I think it's more recently there's really been a shift in our thinking that coincides with the transdiagnostic movement to focus less on the content and more to look at the process. And that's when we look across disorders, some of those process features that we see carry across, whether our clients have social anxiety, PTSD, depression, and many of them have all have you know multiple diagnoses. And that's the reality yeah. too. It doesn't make sense. We engage in thinking in one box just because of our diagnosis for most clients, uh-huh. those symptoms are broad. And so thinking, so yes, that, that traditional distinction has been around the temporal focus, but I think mm-hmm. more and more there's this acknowledgement of it being a, a process that runs across disorders and diagnoses or mental health disorders does that mean that if if and I don't even know how to word this if a client spending more time in the past is more related to low mood and a client spending more in the future is more related to anxiety disorders or do you see that it actually doesn't matter it you know even if they're spending time in the past is still they're still more vulnerable to anxiety disorders I, I think that can be the, the flavour, particularly if someone is very much, if depression is their main presentation, that there does tend mm. to be that dwelling. But also mm. we know that our minds move back and forth. So when I mm. think about something that's happened, I worry that it could happen again. Uh-huh. So I think that, yes, you might see more of that thinking in terms of anticipation and anxiety, but I don't think mm-hmm. that rules out. For example, mm-hmm. our social anxiety clients who think about how badly I must have sounded at that in that situation and worry mm-hmm. about how badly I'll do next time again. Yeah. I might bring Ellie into the conversation here. Could you tell us a little bit about how you detect when you start to engage in repetitive negative thinking? What are some of like the signs for you? Yeah, so I, I agree. Everything Michelle said there really applies to me perfectly. Um, mm. Rumination for me is definitely about living in the past and worrying is definitely about living in the future. And I, I do find often I struggle to live in the present. I'm always oscillating between the two extremes. Mm. Um, And the rumination, I feel, has always tried to serve the purpose of of looking for the wisdom in our mistakes gone by and then being able to ensure we don't do it again. And then obviously the worrying component is all about risk aversion. But I suppose, unfortunately for me, my risk aversion level is way too high for a lot of the stimulus that I come across. Um, But for me... Um, I I do spend, as I said, a lot of my time in those two sort of distinct areas, which is not in the now. So um, for me, it's more about the varying degree and intensity. So Mm. once these sort of processes filter into physical manifestations, that's when I know we're on a bit of a slippery slope. So, um, you know, simple things like you know, increase um, heart rate. I check my blood pressure as well. It's always a good indicator. Um, and I really get that ramping up of thoughts, which can be attributed um, when I'm ramping up with bipolar too, but it's similar, but not towards the manic positive emotion end of the scale. It's definitely spiraling downwards. So, um, but one of the best, best sources of information of how I'm tracking is to ask the people around me. So, mm. 
something that I didn't do until a couple of years ago. Um, I never let anyone know what was going on in my story. Um, but ever since opening up that door, I'm now gaining insights from external to my subjective point of view. And that has been really invaluable because I do have the odd blind spot that I do struggle to overcome uh-huh. and see through. So, so yeah. So you kind of get other people involved in being able to provide a little bit of a feedback loop. Is that correct, Elliot? Basically, yeah. They, they just can see things that I'm blind to and I can't. And uh-huh. And when I step back and and try and see from their point of view what they're saying, it's like, oh, yeah, okay, I get it now. You're right. We need to do something about this before it gets worse. And yeah. and that's important for me because I've got so many different um, moving parts of my presentation. It can be very difficult to have that insight across all diagnoses at the same time. Mm. Um, so it is important to recruit others in some ways to sort of fill the blanks when I just don't have the capacity to do so. Hmm. Can I ask you, Alan, when did you start to notice repetitive negative thinking in your life? Did it precede like the diagnosis? Like, you know, was it happening quite early on in your life? Um, probably unsurprisingly, it did precede diagnosis and by quite a bit. Hmm. Hmm. Um, I remember I was in year five. This is the clearest, earliest memory of this I had, but it's still extremely vivid even, even now as I'm talking about it. I was on the monkey bars at school and I had this very profound thought that I do not want to live a life where I'm nervous all the time. And that is probably what sort of kicked off things for me. Um, so that was year five. It would have been, how old are you in year five, 10 or something, nine. And then I didn't get diagnosed until I was 19. So a decade later, and then I didn't get um, proper diagnosis of a lot of the other components until I was 27 and I'm 30 now. So it's been a long journey, but rumination and worry has always been there. But my awareness that the way that my cognitions were working didn't have to be like that was really just a, a, is really a new idea. So... One of the things I did want to ask, so Christine's got an interesting question here. Does ruminative thinking differ for those individuals with a diagnosis of OCD, so obsessional thoughts? Who would like to take that one? I think maybe I might go to Michelle first because I think you've got that academic familiarity with with potentially how it overlaps with OCD. That's a excuse me. That's a really good question, and I think, to my knowledge, there's not been much study uh, in the context of OCD looking at repetitive thinking around these kinds of qualities. Mm. And I think some of the it, some of the issues that have really hindered our transdiagnostic studies are how we measure rumination, so mm. and repetitive thinking. Many of the measures are actually linked to specific disorders, and that makes it hard to make those comparisons across disorders. Mm. But there is some more recent research coming out um, um, by. Karina Weil and others in Germany, looking at exactly this repetitive thinking and suggesting that, yes, it's very much a a focus of OCD, whether it's exactly the same and has exactly the same kinds of features, I think is something Mm. that we're still continuing to unpack. But certainly that getting on the train that we talked about before and and staying and having trouble moving away from those thoughts, I think clinically is something that we we would very much say we see in, in the context of OCD. I'm not sure if, Nisha, that's your experience too. Yeah, absolutely, Michelle. So I think certainly like I know when I've worked with various people over the years and we're looking at obsessional thoughts, it's certainly that sense that, again, people are getting stuck 
to that that pattern of thinking and they find it really difficult to disengage so often like one of the ways that I'm sort of picking up on like you know a repetitive thing is that they might be raising the same issues like session in session out and it's coming back to the same core themes um so certainly yes I, I do see that at least anecdotally I can say that Absolutely. We've got a great question for Alec here. Alec, can you recognize your early warning signs before rumination becomes too profound? So, yeah. I definitely can. I start thinking about past relationships. That's an easy one, very easy. And as someone who's got borderline personality disorder, that probably doesn't come as a surprise to too many people watching. Um, But the the criteria around loneliness um, is such a big problem for me in general period and a lot of my rumination centers on where did my past relationships go wrong and are we going to be able to make the changes that we need to to be ensure it doesn't happen again and we won't die alone now that sounds very dramatic but it's very true unfortunately so I know that once I start getting into those subject areas we need to start putting the brakes on somehow. And there's different ways that I can do that. But but definitely when it comes to rumination in particular, the borderline traits that I have is what really drives that. And, and it can be very, very debilitating. So you're pointing out like, Two things here, right? It's knowing your own unique warning sign and the recurring themes that seems to get you caught in the cycle. Um, and yep. that's really terrific because, you know, everyone has their own unique warning sign. But number two, it exactly is that characteristic that Michelle and Nisha were talking about. You're asking the really big questions, like how do I not die alone, which is so ab- yep. um, abstract and so unanswerable. You can't work this out in your head and yet we kind of defer to it, default to it. Right. So that's that real abstract quality that, you know, both Michelle and Nisha were talking about. That's how we kind of start to pick it up. So with that in mind, what are the characteristics um, of an individual situational factors that make someone more vulnerable to repetitive negative thinking? Is there any research that tells us, look, you know, how, why do people get into you know, R&T, right, using rumination and worry to work out problems. What's the research in this area? Nisha, do you notice anything in your clinical practice, you know, any unique features or situational factors that kind of drive an individual to use this technique? Yeah, so there are a couple of different things that I look at with my clients. So in part, I look at the bit of the developmental history because obviously, mm. you know, it's a very influential period for a lot of us. And we kind of think who will be around who might be the people we've learned from in terms of how to deal with situations. So for example, if you've grown up in a home where perhaps your mom or your dad may have been the people who engaged in this kind of repetitive thinking, might that have been something that you learned? Might it have been part of your social circle? So I think about it from that social learning perspective. Mm-hmm. Um And then also, I guess, when I'm thinking about the the different kinds of factors that sort of might make us more vulnerable to experiencing anxiety disorders. And because I guess when we think about our own rumination, I think of them as playing a role in the etiology of those disorders as well as the maintenance. So one of the areas I I know some more research is being done is trying to unpack the relationship between those things. But I certainly know, like, you know, when a client does come in and they're reporting that kind of thinking as soon as like I can hear like there's some sense of worry I do start to think which anxiety disorders might be present not because I think it's necessarily important to know all of the ones but because I know those worry processes might drive Mm. a lot of them 
Absolutely. Are there, I mean, you know, and throwing this question to Michelle and Elliot now, right, are there, like, uh, it's interesting, some people never use rumination and worry as a coping technique, and some others do, and then they get into the cycle, right? Well, what other factors that you've noticed? I might go to Michelle, like, is there any research back up that kind of tells us, look, these sort of factors make somebody more vulnerable to use these techniques? I would certainly agree with Nisha looking at those early experiences absolutely Mm. and how I learned to respond to situations and particularly uncertain situations and I think you know there's some suggestion in the literature that if children grow up in a context of needing to spend time figuring things out so if I have a caregiver who is very warm and then I have a very different response to a similar kind of behavior I'm sort of learning to try and read people and and be in my head a lot and I think setting those kinds of uncertain situations for example can set people up to spending a lot of time trying to figure out the world and that can Mm. lend itself to then perhaps thinking too much and going down that path Mm -hmm. but I think another really important factor that Elliot touched on that is certainly consistent with the literature is and Carol something you've studied too this idea Mm. of metacognitive beliefs so Mm. I think for us socially in the world we're primed to think you know we grow up we solve our problems we're told think it through and so I think a lot of the the course of this kind of thinking comes from a very you know, reasonable, understandable place. I'm trying to understand the world. I'm trying to look back at things that have happened and figure out what went wrong so it doesn't happen again. So I think that very, you know, sensible intention um, can be a useful starting point. And I think it's where it goes that can become really problematic. So if I translate that into action, and I talk to my clients about not solving your problems with your head, but solving them with your feet, thinking Mm -hmm. about what's happened. And then if I look back at relationships, for example, Elliot, and the example you gave, thinking about what I did and how can I make a plan to avoid that again? And I think asking those very, very sensible questions, but translating that to concrete action and behavior is where I think many of our clients get stuck. And there's too much time up here with with the goal of figuring things out, but it goes, um, it becomes thwarted by being too much Mm. in the head. And I think that's a really important factor. I I just want to follow up on that because that in in my presentation, my history, that is so true that, um, so with my psychologist, we've done the Elliot relationship cycle. And for every relationship I've been in, they've been all the same, all of them to a T. Um, and I have spent, yeah, you know, uh, what am I, 30? So 15 years ruminating about trying to get uh, the relationship sort of um, pattern and process down pat. And well, I still haven't done it. So I agree completely that there is just too much thinking. I remember I watched a lecture once where they said that people with BPD tend to have above average IQ, but their problem is implementation. And I'm not sure what my IQ is. I hope it's above average, but I definitely know that my implementation is not good. So, um, yeah, I agree with all of that. That's, yeah, definitely. Is there still that gender effect, right? So I think when I first started looking into this area a while back when I used to work with you, Michelle, it's, um, there was always this very strong gender effect of women being more likely to, to ruminate. Is that still true? Well, I think the the early literature, particularly on rumination, mm-hmm. was really born out of that idea. So mm-hmm. Susan, Susan Nolan Hoeksema's initial model mm-hmm. was really around trying to understand this gender difference that we see mm-hmm. in depression and we really see emerge in adolescence um, and that period and continue on into adulthood. Mm-hmm. So, yes, for the most part, I think 
I'm speaking very broadly, but we do tend to see those kinds of thinking might be, again, there's a social issue around, is that perhaps how women and girls are primed to you know, think about the world and solve their problems, but certainly not to the extent, as Elliot's saying here, that we don't see these kinds mm. of thinking across clients um, yeah. as well. But I think perhaps there, there is more of a default tendency that might have social origins that yeah. we see perhaps more likely emerge and emerge earlier in girls than women. Yeah. Um, we've got a question here. Please speak to the context of, it looks like culture. Are there cultural differences um, with rumination and worry? Do we actually detect any of that? Nisha, have you seen any cultural differences in your practice? Because there's one that's, this question specifically relates to Asian countries. And I'm also trying to think in terms of my client makeup, whether there are cultural differences. Look, I, I think there might be cultural differences perhaps in the themes that come up. So for example, if I'm thinking through some of the people that I might see from, let's say from Asia, maybe I might get some more themes that are based around academics, Mm. um, for example, and performance and, Mm. and maybe from other cultures that could potentially be like, again, and this is all anecdotal, but maybe more, it could be perhaps more in relationships and what we're like in those. And some of the questions that, you know, Elliot as well, that you've been saying that you ask yourself, like the kind of meanings of life, questions the perp our purpose you know those big questions as well mm. um but I can't say that I've looked into the research on those cultural differences so I can't speak to that but just just that anecdotal yeah. experience is all I can speak to that's a really interesting question Michelle is there any literature looking at cultural differences not, not that I'm aware of, Carol, and there may mm. well be, but my response would be along Nisha's lines that perhaps mm. what we don't see is difference in the in the process of this kind of mm-hmm. thinking, but it might be that the the fo- the content and the focus in different cultural groups, different issues might be emphasised. Yep, mm. that would be my clinical hunches. Yeah. I've always wondered whether like the reason why we have these gender differences or potentially even cultural differences is if, you know, if you come from or maybe grow up in an environment where there's um, very little opportunity to take action to solve a problem, it's a coping mechanism almost, but it can then go on this journey of being quite dysfunctional later on when you do have the tools, but you don't necessarily go to those tools because you have been trained from that earlier life experience because you didn't have the power to implement those changes. And maybe that's a little bit of that with, and I'm not saying that girls don't now, but maybe it's like a cultural thing over time in terms of how we acculturate girls to um, manage problem solving almost. And, And that might explain some of the gender differences, but I'm just theorizing here. But I think that's a good hypothesis and it would be interesting to look at that over time, Carol, I think, mm. to see that too. And and again, you you talk about something we've all touched on is that habit. And once it does emerge, if my early experiences, my environment or my relationships or what I see happening around me gives me this tendency or, or makes me sort of lean on this uh, approach of trying to figure things out, then that mm. becomes such a well-worn worn groove and mm. irrespective of other opportunities later to solve problems, that's where my head goes because that's been my default yeah. Um, Michelle, the other question I also wanted to ask is, you know, that perinatal period, you're doing a little bit of research in that that area as well. Yeah, so something there- we've been, been interested in, sorry, Carol, is, um, is understanding uh, repetitive thinking in the perinatal period. Hmm. Absolutely. Uh, and have you come across any interesting data? Do we see increased rumination and worry or do you see people who already engage in that increase in that peri- perinatal period? Um, both. And most of the work at the moment has been around worry 
And unsurprisingly, the most of the focus has been on worry in pregnancy, um, where it's a time of tremendous change and and often many you know really significant concerns and shifts in transitions in lifestyle and hormonal factors, a whole bunch of things going on. And so, unsurprisingly, we do see elevated worry in that period. And and there's also some evidence that heightened worry in pregnancy is a good predictor of uh, depression, anxiety, and postpartum. Um, rumination has been far less studied. So the focus in that literature has been really on worry and on worry about pregnancy-related themes in particular, but mm. much less research has looked at this process idea that we've talked about today, this idea of just repetitive thinking, irrespective of what it's stuck on, is that a predictor? So that's something that we're starting to look at now to really, with a view to saying, if we know that someone's prone to engaging in repetitive thinking and we might have ways of helping them, um, mm. could be, that be something that might prevent difficulties in postpartum that we know many women uh, struggle yeah. with. So that's that's certainly something developing in the literature. It sounds to me like there's so many new areas that we haven't really, you know, sort of explored with rumination and worry, but there's this growing acceptance that it may be quite a massive transdiagnostic not diagnostic process that we need to explore for different mental health challenges, different presentations, and we still don't know how they work within those presentations. Is that correct? All right, so Elliot, we've got a really interesting question here, and I've just lost it because we had a new question come in. All right, and it was a good one, which was I think you were talking about um, how you kind of rely on feedback from others to support you, right, to be able to have that um, early detection um, system. And they asked, would you mind sharing an example of how that feedback has supported you? So, you know, what what maybe an example of a time when it's been picked up and and, and how that worked for you yeah so I think um uh often I tend to descend quite rapidly and spiral but not always and I find that if it's a slower gradual um uh reduction towards rumination usually in that case is driven by the bipolar swings mm-hmm. um often it's because it's incremental I don't pick up on it very well so it's good when I have family or friends who know what's going on and know what to look for and are able to pull me aside and say, listen, mate, you know, we've noticed this. How are you tracking? Are you okay? Um, are you okay? Cliche, but very, very important. And um, and it's it's those – and talking about those issues with other people really externalizes what I'm thinking. So instead of having it all buried up here where there, there's no moderation because I'm I'm taking a back seat, the emotions are taking control, um, and it's good to get other people's feedback because they tend to add logic back into the mix. So if we want to talk about dialectical behaviour therapy, I guess I use other people's um, opinions and, and ideas to, to strengthen that logical side of my brain and give it a bit of backup so I can get back to that mindful, wise mind um, presence. So, yeah, it's, um, yeah, I battled a long time doing it on my own and it didn't work. So it was time to do something different. And I'm glad that I did, that's for sure. And it's such an effective strategy as well. And having others support you is actually really key. We all need it, whether we have like a standing diagnosis or not, because it's so important in terms of helping us track our well-being often, right? So we've got a lot of questions on interventions, and I think we better get to that. What are the most effective strategies available um, for us to kind of 
break repetitive negative thinking. Elliot, I actually might start with you because you have a very specific strategy for yourself um, to kind of break that cycle. Yeah, so I tend to look at um, my rumination and worry in short or situational terms and then long term in those broader questions like I touched on before. So some, some worries will be, I just saw my boss. I don't think that conversation went well. He's definitely going to fire me. Okay, mm. we need to check the facts, bit of DBT, use me CBT, let's challenge those that logical side and see if there's any basis to it. Um, and also what's important in those situations is to be very mindful and say, hey, hang on, let's distance ourselves from this comment. Let's even label it like an acceptance commitment therapy and say that's that particular cognition. We know that's trouble and it's not real. Let's get a bit of distance and then we can move on, hopefully, with a clearer mind. Um, And rumination very much taps into, again, like those really big questions. And then worry does as well, though. So the rumination is like, how did my life end up like this when Mm. it could have been this? Mm. Whereas the worry is I want to get there, but I'm not good enough to get there. Mm. And that means who the hell even am I? So for example, I want to be a clinical psychologist because I want to make some change in in our communities in in the mental health space. If I don't get to that point, because there's this huge level of self-critical judgment that's weighing me down. um, If I can't get there, well, who even am I? What is my identity? Um, so for that sort of stuff, it's all about the rumination stuff. Someone wrote in the comments just before that, um, it, it appears people will ruminate if they haven't found an answer to something in their past. And I think that's Mm. very true. So what I'm, I'm trying to do at present actually is really writing down a bit of an autobiography, um, and really extrapolate the wisdom from my mistakes and say, okay, there it is on a piece of paper. I can I can quantify and qualify what happened. This is what I learned. We can let go and move on. That's a process that I'm still doing, but hopefully it works well. I love it that you are sort of containing your repetitive negative thinking, like almost like constraining it within a text and then being able to let it go, right? And it's such a almost like, you know, problem solving at the same time as a little bit of mindfulness and actually um consciously saying yep that's done I'm gonna let it go so that's fantastic do you use mindfulness as well Elliot I do I do um I I try and meditate it's a skill like anything else but because I've ADHD my well obviously my attention isn't the best um so it's a bit of a challenge but at the same time you know I've read the studies of, of its effects on the amygdala and how good it can be for all these different disorders which a lot of them I've got so I have to do it so yeah I I, I do do it I wouldn't say I'm an I'm a, I'm a zen buddhist yet but I'm working on it good I love that I I have found mindfulness to be an extremely challenging task to master it sounds really simple but I think it, you know you're exactly right it, it takes quite a bit of focus and quite a bit of practice Nisha what about you I might get you to you know and there's a specific question I think we're now in the space of talking about intervention um, but we've got this question um, how do we help patients to problem solve rather than worry which is really about what are our effective interventions right to, to break some of these uh, repetitive negative um, thinking what do you use in your practice Nisha? 
Yeah. So I always bring it back to formulation. So I guess I, I try and think about what for this person might be driving the worry. Mm. Um, so if, for example, let's say, because um, sometimes people can come in with those sorts of questions, I think like, you know, for you, Elle, it's like, you know, what am I going to do? My, how am I going to get to this place and whatnot? And, and what are my ways to get there? So if it looks like it's a difficulty in solving the problem, then I might teach them through, take them through some structured problem solving. So we're, you know, coming up with multiple solutions to the problem potential solutions evaluating them and then I'll give me a sense of where we're at because uh-huh. you know if there are any barriers in that process I'll, I'll be able to pick that up but sometimes it could be driven by other things so for example let's say someone is awaiting the results um, for their exams or for a medical test that they've just had and they might be thinking all the what ifs like what if I failed or what if I've got some disease that I don't yet know about it's going to be really serious and it's that time where you know, no amount of thinking is going to get us anywhere so there might uh-huh. be then processes around acceptance that we might be working on in terms of accepting that we don't have the answer or learning how to tolerate uncertainty might be part of that picture. So, or I might be teaching them how to diffuse thoughts. So there are lots of different strategies like a person might use, but I guess what I'm saying is it's really just comes back to what I think might be driving what's going on for them. I'll feed that back to my client. We'll collaborate on it. They feel like, yep, this is definitely what's happening for me. Then we'll just think what might be the antidote to that then. Mm-hmm. it's hard though I'll tell you that like trying to get people because people get it intellectually implementing it is another thing but we just keep giving it a good go absolutely and can I ask you this because I've sometimes found myself in clinical sessions like this where you're almost like pulled into a vortex of co-ruminating you seem to keep going in circles and the session kind of goes nowhere and that's like my detection system of going "Uh oh we're kind of like ruminating do you have that experience and how do you start to to break that that kind of cycle yeah so for me honestly I think it's about being comfortable talking about these sorts of processes with clients so it's just like labeling the process to say you know what I think has just happened is I think both of us are now on the same path where we're listening to that same radio channel. Ah, you know, that. we've both got it playing in our heads and we'll get a sense of what's your channel saying, here's what my, my channel is saying. It's like, okay, is this helping us and is it not? Because we don't make the assumption immediately that it's just not helpful in any yeah. way, shape or form, but it's saying, okay, if it's not helping either of us, okay, what can we do to then transition to a different space where we feel like either we're working to solve a problem or we're learning how to let it go or tolerate uncertainty because that's what the mm-hmm. situation calls for. Mm-hmm. I love that. It's such a collaborative approach where you kind of like it's a partnership. We're li- listening to the same channel. I don't know. Is it helpful? You know, I, I, I'm not sure where we're going with this, but how do you feel about it? I love that. That's it's just like cu- that healthy curiosity, I think, about the process because yeah. we're human too, right? Sometimes yeah. we can get into someone's story and the next thing you know that channel is playing in our heads yes and we're co-ruminating and we're (laughs) co-worrying together a little bit right um and I also love that it's almost like a very gentle approach of pointing out that we're ruminating we're getting kind of stuck in the cycle together so that's you know that's a lovely gentle approach so so far we've talked about some of these techniques Michelle are they evidence-based what are the specific interventions people want to know about what are some of the ways we can really break um, rumination. I think you've been doing some research studies in this area as well, um, and maybe even a a study with Black Dog Institute. So we might actually pull that up. Okay. Yeah, so more recently there have been, I I guess, not just thinking about content, but moving towards thinking about process in this way Mm. and new treatments developed to do that. And I think rumination-focused cognitive therapy is one example. 
um, developed by Ed Watkins and colleagues here in the UK. And the emphasis there is very much on, it draws on multiple approaches. It has components of mindfulness and behavioral activation, but very much uh, the emphasis is on shifting clients out of this abstract thinking, this tendency to be over general, this tendency to ask why, and to shift them into a much more concrete and problem solving type of uh, approach. And I think echoing both what Elliot and uh, Nisha said there as well, I think a very useful way of doing that and helping clients to make that distinction is thinking about the why and thinking about how and what. And I think sometimes we can catch a client's language and move them away when we're hearing a lot of why questions. Think, okay, how can we change that into a how? So why do I feel like this? How do I feel and what can I do about it? And I think that rumination-focused therapy really does that, focuses a lot on shifting channels, to use this Nisha's language, into a much more concrete uh, focus. Um, Behavioural activation, the the rumination component of that, again, really focuses on the function of rumination, seeing it in very behavioural terms and, and really very consistent with what Elliot was mentioning there too, spotting rumination, knowing my triggers, knowing what's keeping me stuck um, and stepping back from engaging in that. And I think this recent work conducted by Amy at the Black Dog Institute with Jill Newby and colleagues uh, really has done this very nicely. So recently developed a, just a three-session online program to target worry and rumination using many of those ideas that I've just mentioned. So education, what is repetitive thinking, monitoring it, rules of thumb of rumination. So teaching our clients to look out and think, hold on, I'm thinking in this way. Have I made progress towards solving my problem? Do I understand my problem any better? Or has thinking in this way helped my mood? And if the answer is no, then you're probably on the repetitive thinking track. Mm. Problem solving, specific thinking, those kinds of strategies. And what they showed is that in just three sessions online, uh, comparing a self-guided or a clinician-guided intervention, that there were benefits, reduced repetitive thinking, benefits in mood for both of those participants who received the intervention with the clinician-guided uh, and also uh, engaged in the self-administered version, although the clinician-guided intervention was slightly more effective. So what I think is really exciting about this kind of work is that it's a very simple intervention, potentially something we could add on to um, as an adjunct to what we do in the clinic, potentially an intervention that could be rolled out to someone who may not have access to, to services or might be on a long waiting list. So perhaps um, scope for this to be helpful as a, as a precursor to um, to a, a more um, a long-term uh, psychological intervention. Lots of scope, and particularly in the context of COVID, we need more interventions, we need more remote interventions to reach more people and disseminate more readily. So I think this is a really lovely example of um, a really effective, simple, uh, easy-to-administer approaches that hopefully will continue to develop. Just to scroll back to the previous um, slide now, and um, because people are so interested in what the main interventions were, right? It's really about problem solving. The three rules of thumb. What were the three rules of thumb again? I can't remember. I remember speaking to Amy as well, but I remember one of them being very useful to my clinical practice, which is she's. You know, it's almost like a time limited approach. Like you only get thirty minutes. You've got to notice when you're in this for thirty minutes, and you're not going anywhere. That is time to go that might be rumination that might be worry and a little bit of that self-monitoring and activity planning um, is this a transdiagnostic approach Michelle like is this like the Ed Watkins model um, and these you know these different interventions could it be used for lots of different presentations or is it still now currently just focused on a few like generalized worry uh, generalized anxiety disorder and depression 
definitely transdiagnostic. So very much, mm. again, developed in the context of depression, Carol. So mm. um, coming from this idea of rumination, but again, tremendous scope. If we teach our clients, irrespective of what the content is, if I've been on this track mm. for a bit, hold on, can I stop for a second in the way Elliot described it and really mm. just step outside a bit and evaluate it? Is this helping mm. me? Is it moving me forward? Is it making me feel better? If not, hold on, I'm on, I'm on the path. And how can I mm. reorient and move towards something much more concrete? And I think that's where our real challenge is here. And I think keeping it very, very simple for our clients. If you think, if I have a head full of worries and rumination and, and they've been there a long time and I come to therapy, I'm sure for many people that just feels insurmountable. And I think it can for us as therapists too. And thinking about that in, mm. in the terms that make it feel manageable. Okay. And seeing that as a behavior, teaching mm. uh, clients to be better at reading, noticing, and stopping and then moving towards. And I really think that language is a very simple way of doing that. Am I hearing why? Am I hearing why? How can I shift that into more active problem-solving terms? How do I make these what and how statements mm. rather than why questions that just feed each other and don't provide any answers at all? Mm. It, it, it would so help contain some sessions because I can see that, you know, when we do come across clients who really do ruminate and worry, that we sometimes, even when we're doing maybe cognitive challenging, that cool part of CBT, it sort of goes off the rails sometimes, right? The why keeps sneaking in, the what ifs, um, and to be able to go, hold on, let's step back and there's a process happening here, which is rumination, which is worry. And we're kind of getting stuck in a loop, even when we're trying to do cognitive challenging. So I love, I love those rule of thumb. Now we have this really great question here and it's a very interesting one. Um, and I've lost it for a moment. There it is. It's from John. This rumination always have to have negative thoughts. Could it be with positive thoughts as well? And I've never thought about that. What's, what's your take on this? Um, and, you know, Elliot, do you, do you have that or is it always negative thoughts? Um, what I tend to have is I'll try and think of a positive event in the past mm. and then the worry will start that I'll never experience that sort of happiness again. Mm. And then all of a sudden that happy memory is now ruminated in a context of that was so great, never to be seen okay. again. So. Um, that was just a little thing I wanted to bring up, the interplay between rumination and worry. They're not situationally mutually exclusive in my mm. experience. <clears throat> mm. Excuse me. Um, and it's it's really frustrating when when some genuine good memories are all of a sudden clouded for, for no reason other than a huge anxious response about something that doesn't deserve it. So, um, but, yeah, I don't, I don't know if... Um, I don't know. My, my understanding is that it doesn't fit with the definition, right, Michelle? Repetitive negative thinking is the negative component that's a really big part because when I do get clients to spend a lot of time in positive imagery and really be able to stay with it, it's like, you know, like daydreaming, right? I would imagine that it's quite a, a, a mood lifter. So, um, yeah, what's your take on it, Michelle? Yeah, I completely agree with Elliot there and, and mm. what he's referred to there is something mm. that Lisa Werner-Seidler has looked at in her work too um, mm. a number of years back now, that taking of something that's positive and applying that same. So, again, we come back to process. So, mm. the content is, yes, we tend to think of 
RNT is generally focused on negative content and that tends mm. to be the way our clients present. But there's also this mm. capacity for that same process of thinking to take the joy out of the good things. And I think your example was lovely, Elliot. So thinking back to a good time in the past and thinking, but it's never going to be that good again. So again, mm. the, the what's really important is, is the process. And sometimes that can be attached to positive material and twist that into something negative. But also something, again, Elliot raised is that repetitive thinking that we sometimes see in the context of mania and seeing that as something that can sometimes fuel you know mood elevation too and that's an area that is increasingly being studied now getting stuck in this cycle and that abstract thinking and what happens at that other uh, end of the of the mood spectrum and how might that be an amplifier uh, that might shift uh -huh. someone into, into more manic mood state oh that's really interesting so this is a very interesting question from oliver here right who says yes I agree, rumination as the form of escapism. And that's really interesting because I've always thought of rumination ish. I don't know if you've thought about it this way rumination and worry as actually avoidance of doing potentially. Well, yeah, because if you think about it, I, I kind of think of it as sometimes it's a tool we might use to procrastinate. Let's say there's something mm. that you've always wanted to do in life. For example, you might have always been thinking about. Um, like you know changing jobs or something like that and it's like something that we can sort of like keep putting it off it's like no I'll try my hand at that particular role down the track and then you know you might sit there ruminating on that and how you haven't changed and worrying about all things that could go wrong if you did change and mm -hmm. that can be something that that gets us stuck but at the same time it also means we don't have to confront that feared thing Mm -hmm. Absolutely. It's almost as though for me is it is one of the forms of avoidance, you know, uh, just if I can just think through this, I don't actually have to, to do anything. So I actually think that's a really good point there that was made by our audience that it's a form of escapism, but I would probably maybe even replace it with um, potentially avoidance instead. So hopefully that kind of clarifies some, some of that, the questions around whether we can do positive content but in fact you know a lot of the research is showing that just like Elliot's experience even when we try to do that it sort of feeds us back into that negative space so what are the take-home messages here for our practitioners who are listening in so um, what are some of the things we would like to share with our practitioners before we end this podcast Elliot what are your take-home messages here um I think, uh, as has been said, across many different um, diagnoses, rumination and worry is a core feature, but they do present a little bit differently. Um, so I think just to be mindful that um, there can be different types and different needs that have to occur for a person, obviously, to, to get to where they want to be. So, for example... CBT for me never worked that well because my logical brain, my logic was strong and I knew that the things I was, I was stressing over and ruminating about and worrying about was silly. In my black dog presentation, when I go to the schools, I joke my high school issues, which are still here. Um, but CBT wasn't the go for me because I am borderline and driven by so much emotion that clouds the logic it's actually things like schema therapy that seem to have worked better or internal family systems therapy um, and DBT, of course, as well. So, and I guess the only, the other thing, um, I think hypervigilance tends to uh, carry itself with these two presentations as well, because 
if you're worried and ruminating about mistakes, in my view anyway, my perception, I'm always looking at faces to see if I've said something that's out of line or if it's not. So I think just just to be mindful in general that um, it can be a bit raw for people. Um, and yeah, it's, it's a big, it's a big mountain to climb. That's for sure. But yeah, I think we can, for those suffering, we can all get there. So. Good. And I love that you're sort of encouraging us to be a little bit flexible with the framework that we use and being mindful about, you know, tailoring it to the unique um, client's, you know, presentation and being aware, right, that CBT is not working for this client um, and that something else might work a little bit better. Right. So um, what about you, Nish? What's your big take-home message? Just before I answer that, can I just mm. ask Elliot a quick question? Yeah, yeah. Sorry, Elliot, you're just about, you just haven't drank. I caught you at the yeah, wrong moment. I just, just got a dry to... mouth because I'm anxious. <laughs> okay. Sorry. I just wanted to ask, do you find that there's a difference if you catch the rumination or the worry early? Like if it's easier to stop if you catch it early in the process as opposed to when you're, say, 10 minutes, half an hour in? There is, but I'm really poor at doing it. Okay. So I I don't know if this is a bit of a like a learned help helplessness thing that I do, but I, I almost like the rumination because it's I know what it is and I know what I'm up against and it it is. And we spoke about before about avoidance and um, and uh, using it as a tool in that sense. And I think I definitely do. Not that I mean to, but unfortunately I, I do slip into that behaviour. But getting it early, I think is definitely better because if you let it go, you will find things in this emotional quagmire that you're in that may not be real, but you'll still find them and they'll seem real to you. And then all of a sudden you're off on another track and 10 minutes turns into 10 hours. And all of a sudden it's like, what, where has my time gone? So yeah, getting it early is so important, but, but yeah, for me, it just hits, it's like it's zero to a hundred. There's, very rarely is it a slow, gradual increase of thoughts. It's all or nothing. So, so it is difficult for me to really pull it in a line. That's really interesting because there's a comment here on um, the chat box as well where, you know, it sounds like ru rumination can become soothing as a tool to cope in the moment and then it becomes an issue later on and that's from Oslam. And that kind of makes sense in terms of like it's almost, as we talked about earlier on, it was these early coping mechanism and then uh, it kind of propels out of control <laughs> later on. Michelle, welcome back. Hello. I think we lost you halfway through a question, which is, is there, um, and we might have a little bit of space to talk about this before we end the podcast. Is there any research around that, that mania and that propelling of rumination in that space and, and positive thoughts that sort of goes out of control? Yeah. My apologies for my internet. Um, but Sherry Johnson and colleagues in the US have been interested in this question for some time and, and developed a measure akin to the way we measure rumination, but looking at responses to positive affect. And again, shown that this kind of tendency to engage in, in the same process is something that's linked to, linked to mania and linked to bipolar disorder. So very much it challenges that idea again, that you talked about, Carol, this is RNT that we're talking about, actually is repetitive thinking a better focus because again, it shifts off content and it just looks at this tendency to engage in thinking that might take you down a path that makes you feel feel worse, whether that is in terms of amplifying mood or, or reducing mood. Um, 
And I think that question to, to, that um, has just been raised there and, and again, echoing Elliot's thoughts there around avoidance, you know, I think is a really good one and certainly a focus of, say, behavioral activation uh, approaches, this idea that rumination and many of our clients feel as though they're doing something, I'm solving my problems, I'm up here. But actually the clinical question is what are you not doing in your life when you're so busy up here? And that's where it can serve a function that that has a, has avoidance as the outcome, but also in the moment might give us give someone a sense of I'm solving my problem, I'm I'm working on it, and may, maybe there's a sense of reassurance in that, even though ultimately what it does is keep you very much from doing the taking the steps to take that you need to take to solve something. So can I just quickly jump in very quickly? So with my ADHD, I find what you just said, Michelle, that is me to a T. I will sit on you know on my bed. And I will have, because obviously you can't prioritize with ADHD, everything is important. So I'm trying to figure out what I should be doing. And I get comfort in the fact that I'm thinking about what I could do. And I imagine a little bit of me actually engaging with the task. And then, of course, you know, four hours is gone and I haven't brushed my teeth yet. So, yeah, it's um, yeah, it's hard to step out of, that's for sure. And across all my different, um, yeah, the way that I... I um, my behavioural manifestations, yeah, rumination worries is just about in all of them. That's for sure. So what's your take-home message, Nish, for the listeners? Sure. So, yeah, sorry, I didn't answer that before. So, yeah, so, so my take-home is is basically is to assess and formulate with a client and take a look at what might be driving it for them and to really collaborate on that to get a shared understanding and to also mm. realise you can work flexibly with different skills and try things out and mm. see what works because I think, you know, as Michelle's been um, noticing, and I think Elliot as well, from your experience, it's really been a bit of trial and error to see what speaks for you, what works for you, as well as what works for you in different contexts, because that same skill or strategy might work in one setting with one problem, but perhaps not in another. So I think it's honestly just about having that flexibility. What about you, Michelle? What's your take-home message? I think my take-home is just keep it simple. And I think the more we can help our clients distill this to a behaviour that I can spot, I know straight away that I'm doing that and here's how I shift out of it, doing that in the most simple way that avoids going down that analysis path that they're prone to, I think is the best way that we can help our clients shift out of this type of thinking. And that doesn't mean it's easy, but keeping it simple, I think, makes that more likely to be effective. Thank you for that. So, um, so as we're ending our podcast today, I'm gonna we're gonna finish up, and then I'm gonna do my post event rumination and use all those strategies that you guys have talked about. I've already because, started. Don't worry. Yeah. Every time I do this podcast, I keep telling my colleagues, you know, my heart's pounding and so nerve wracking. Um, but you guys have been great tonight. So as we're finishing up tonight, this is a gentle reminder to visit the Black Dog Institute um, because we've got plenty of tools there for you, um, the 10 Network, um, which is, you know, for health professionals, there's support there, um, My Compass and the Black Dog Institute Online Clinic. And there are also other resources. By the way, I'm loving the Black Dog Resources for Self-Care during COVID. You can just Google that and it'll come up. I've been using that a lot with my clients. Please do check us out because there are lots of um, tools on there, self-help tools for uh, both people interested uh, interested in taking care of their own mental health as well as clinicians, um, clinician tools as well. So 
Um, with that in mind, don't forget we have our next podcast um, in October. It's always on the last Wednesday um, of the month. And our next podcast will feature Jill Newby from the Black Dog Institute and um, our other panel members we're still finalizing, but it's on partners, not competitors, the integration of clinical clinician expertise with online program. And I think, Michelle, you touched on that a little bit tonight in terms of the outcome of Amy's um, research study showing that clinician guided was sort of the, the best combo um, of the different groups that you had. So we do encourage you to come back um, next month, uh, last Wednesday, to join us again. Thank you so much to our amazing panel members. You were fantastic tonight. Thank you, Elliot, Michelle, Anisha, and I'm wishing everyone a good night here. So thank you for joining us tonight. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to hear more of our podcasts, subscribe to and review Black Dog Institute on iTunes or your preferred podcasting platform. If you're interested in knowing more about our educational programs and research, please visit our website at blackdoginstitute.org.au.